Yeah, so good. Man, that's high. Okay. Wear your, you gotta wear your tight pants to sing that song. That's a, wow, whoa. Good job, man. Good. Hey, uh, real quick, uh, update on, on Joe. Uh, so a lot of you all have been praying for Joe. He has a, a, an aneurysm behind his right eye, and he has been praying. He went in for the procedure this past Wednesday, and they went in and found out they can't coil it. They, they're going to have to come back in a couple weeks with a neurologist. You meet with the neurologist Tuesday to, to schedule your surgery to go in and clip that thing and, and cauterize it, and then it's all fixed. It's all better, right? Right? Yes. Yes. All right, right? So uh, keep on praying for Joe and his family. We love you, man. All right. Yeah, hey, hey, let me jump into this. Today's going to be a little bit different kind of message. And what I mean is we're going to stick with our study through one part of the Bible that we've been working through and keep on unpacking this idea of freedom that's found when you put your faith in Christ. You can live free in Christ uh, by just putting your faith and trust in what Jesus did for you to connect you to God. But, but when I say it's going to be a little bit different today, what I, what I mean is this. I want to kind of take a time out today and back up and give a little bit of history. And when I say that, it's going to be reviewed for some of us, but it's going to be brand new information for some of the rest of us. But for most of us, I think it's going to be like a little bit of both. I, I think I, I went to church one time and heard something like that, but I forgot about it. But now that now that you've reminded me, all this Jesus stuff is going to make more sense. I, my goal is that today when you leave here, you're going to go, I kind of understand my faith just a little bit more than I did maybe, maybe an hour ago. And, and again, here's what I mean by that. We are in the middle of a study through a book in the Bible. And there's free Bibles in the back, both here and at West. So, so go get one if you want a Bible. But when I say a book of the Bible, actually, it's a letter, okay? It's a compilation of a bunch of, of, of letters written by a guy named Paul to some Christians who at one time, Paul had come to their town and taught them. He said, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he did on a cross for you and they believed it by faith they put their trust in Jesus as the son of God who died on a cross for their sins and they were forgiven and reconnected back to God uh, the same as us all right a lot of us in this room we 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 believe that okay some of us are trying to figure out if we believe it or not but but it's the exact same thing Paul taught that, that you can put your faith in Jesus and he will save you all right so so in other words God gives us forgiveness and salvation it's the same thing all right as a gift and, and that word gift is the same word as grace, all right, free gift. When we put our faith in what Jesus did for us, he gives us forgiveness because of what Jesus did for us. He doesn't give us grace and forgiveness because of something that we did for ourselves. He gives us forgiveness because of what Jesus did for us. And all we have to do to be forgiven by God is, is believe it. Accept it, all right? Take it. But by, by faith, faith, take it, believe it. Lean your life against it. It's all the same, the same thing. I believe that Jesus did that and it counts for me. Paul put it in a very concise statement. He wrote another letter to some people that lived in Ephesus saying the same thing. This is a really, really famous verse, all right? So the, the book of Ephesians is a letter written to some people who live in Ephesus. This is how Paul writes it to them. He says, this is really famous. It goes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. You didn't do anything to get saved. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works that, you know, I did something good. No, no, so that no one may boast. So how can you know? How can, how can I know for sure that I'm saved? How can you know? How can you go to bed tonight going absolutely without question, I know I'm forgiven. I'm reconnected back to God. If someone were to ask you, because you, you tell them you go to church now and, and that, you, that you're connected to God, and they look at you and well, how do you know? How do you know if you really are saved? And the only answer that, can, that you can assure yourself is, is to the, the answer to that question is yes, I know I'm saved is this, because I believe. I have faith in, this, in Jesus as the Son of God. He died on a cross to pay for my sins. What he did on a cross 2,000 years ago counts for me. And then he rose from the dead as proof that he is who he says he is, and he will keep every promise to do that, forgive me, and everything else he promised to do in my life. I am saved. You are saved because of what Jesus did for me. Not because of something I did right 
or, or I, I stopped doing something bad. See, and the flip side of that answer is this. I am not and I will not be unsaved. I will not be disqualified because it's something I've done wrong in the past. God forgot about it, saved me, then goes, oh yeah, I forgot about Thursday in college. Remember that? And then he's going to go, no, I, I take your salvation back. It's not going to happen. And if you screw up next week or next year, he doesn't kind of go, I'm going to take it back because I didn't know you were going to do that. No, you are saved. So just, as, just so everybody's kind of on the same page, all right, and this is all going to go someplace here in a few minutes, and working off the same definitions because we come from a lot of different backgrounds, let's look at some big words like this, grace. Grace. So when I say grace, you read in the Bible, this is what it means. A free gift that is given to someone based on the choice and generosity of who? The giver. There's going to be a lot of feedback. It's audience participation day, all right? So based on the choice and generosity of the giver and not the qualification of the recipient, I'm giving grace not because I'm a good person. I'm giving grace because God is a, good, is a good God, and he gives it to me. See, if the recipient has to do something good you know, to, to earn the gift, it's no longer a gift. It's a payment. It, it's a wage, all right? I did this. God owes me this. Grace is a gift that is given to you based on something about the giver, not the recipient. The other big word we're going to throw around a lot in here goes like this. It's called faith. Again, we all come from different backgrounds, but faith by definition is this, confidence that God is, Jesus is, who he says he is, and has kept and will keep every promise that he's made to you. That's important. What's faith? I'm confident that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he'll keep every promise he's ever made to me. And that brings us back to a big question. Well, who's Jesus? There's a lot of thought on that. All over the world, all right? Uh, all different kinds of religions have different thoughts on it. Some people say Jesus was a great teacher, which he was, a great philosopher, which he was, a great moral example about this is how to live your life and how to treat one another, all right? You know, I've traveled all over the world. Everybody can hang with Jesus on that level. I go to Afghanistan. People like Jesus. He's in the Quran. He's a, he's a good man, all right? You can go all over the world. Jesus is a really good teacher, a great moral example, all right? But there are a list of people that fit those qualifications, right? List of, list of people. What sets Jesus apart is that he claimed to be not just the son of God, but to be God. Are you God? I am. I'm God in the flesh. And he, and he not only taught us who God is and what God's really like, he said things like this, see me, then you've seen God. But he claimed that as the son of God, his death on a cross would serve as the ultimate sacrificial payment for our sins and mistakes for everybody who would believe, trust in him that he is who he says he is and he could do what he said to do, all right? But then he threw this on top of it. Because anybody can claim that. I claim to be the son of God. I can claim, put your, fa- put your faith in Pastor Jim and I'll change your life, all right? Anybody can stand on a stage and say, I'm something special, whether it's true or not. But Jesus basically said this, don't believe me just because I said it. Don't believe me just because I, I claimed it. Here's ultimate proof that you can believe I am who I say I am and I will do what I claim to be able to do. Kill me, then watch. Crucify me, nail me to a cross, stick me in a hole, all right? And here's what's gonna happen. Three days later, I will rise from the dead and then you'll know. I am. I'm the one. Now, I'm the only one who can save you. So they took him up on the offer. They killed him. They nailed him to a cross. They stuck him in a hole. And three days later, he rose from the dead as proof that he, Jesus alone, can save. No other faith system claims that. No other religion offers that. Let God do it for you because you'll never be able to do it for yourself. Jesus alone says, I will do it for you. Now, that is the cornerstone of Christianity. If you take that away, it all falls apart. If you ever have to move to another city or, or, or say, I don't like this church anymore, whatever, and you end up in another church, how do you know they're preaching the truth? Because they will teach this. I am saved and forgiven because of what Jesus did for me and nothing else. And if they add something to it, gather your things, we'll get your kids and don't go back to that church, right? I am saved and forgiven because of what Jesus did for me or the way Paul said it. I am saved by grace, a gift, through faith. My dependence on, I'm leaning my life against what Jesus did for me and don't let anybody add to that. 
Now, now, after the fact, some things happen. When a person is saved by grace through faith, the result of that salvation is my life starts changing. You, you live differently because you've been saved. That's the evidence or, or, or the, the fruit of being saved. Jesus lives in me, and so now because he's in me, I live differently. But you aren't saved because you decided to live differently. You aren't saved because you, I changed some things and fixed some things and cleaned some things up in my life and promised God I would do that less. And as a result, I, I did something good, good enough, because of that, God saved me. No, it doesn't work that way. And by the same token, all right, God will never unsave you because you made a mistake or committed some sin that undoes what Jesus did for you on a cross. No, listen to this. This may be the best thing you've heard in a long time. Your salvation, I am saved and forgiven and loved by God and connected. Your salvation st- status is sealed in what Jesus did for you and not dependent upon something that you did right or wrong. You have to believe that. I grew up not knowing. Every time I, every time I went to bed at night, I didn't know I was saved or going to hell based on how my day went. That's a horrible way to live, right? I, I, I grew up, I really grew up believing if Jesus came back from heaven and I was in a rated R movie, that's it. That's it. Go to hell, Jim. You were in a rated R movie. You shouldn't be looking at that, all right? So, no, no, I can mess up my life right now and I'm still saved. All right, my life changes because I'm saved, but if I mess it up, I'm not unsaved. That's really, really, really important, all right? Now, let's get back to this book of Galatians, all right? This is a letter that was written to some people just like us in this room, all right, that used to believe all that. There was a time that they actually believed all this, that what I just said was true. But then some people came along and got into their church, all right, and got into their heads and taught them that. You say that's good news? Let me tell you what, that's too good to be true news. There has to be more. And convince them, these Christian people, you have to do something. It can't be all Jesus, all right? You have to to start doing some things or change some things in your life. And you have to go back to the Old Testament, all those rules and laws about food and stuff. You've got to keep some of those, right? If you'll do that, then God will know you're really serious about loving him and following him. And you're committed to, 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 to changing your life. And once you prove your level of commitment by cleaning up your life, then God will forgive you. By the way, that's what kept a lot of you from ever coming to church. Someone like me couldn't go to church. I'll clean up my life and I'll, I'll, I'll try to pull that together and I'll get off this and all that and then I'll go to church and then I'll, I'll get right with God. No, 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 no. You can't get right with God until God lives in you, right? That, that just keeps a lot of people away, all right? But that's what we think. We think that we are saved partly through grace, through faith in Jesus and partly by successfully cleaning up our life, by working hard, especially by keeping rules and, and regulations and parts of the Bible and verses in the Bible that, that, that were written before Jesus showed up. There's a lot of us that connect. I'm safe if I eat this or don't eat this, drink this or don't drink this, wear that or don't wear that. If I do good things, if I donate back, backpacks, if I give money to the poor, if I keep a bunch of rules, then, then God will look at me and go, you're serious. You've done your part. My son Jesus will do his part and now you'll be saved. Let me just tell you what, I don't care. I hope you brought backpacks. If you didn't, go get another one, all right? But, but here's the thing, it has nothing to do with your salvation. I hope you give money to the poor, but it has nothing to do with you being saved, getting saved, all right? It's the result of being saved. Because Jesus saved me, I'm going to live my life different. And so Galatians is Paul's letter to some Christians reminding them that it is by faith in what Jesus did alone that saves you, okay? So that's the history lesson, all right? Now, let's get to today. So as I was sitting down to to study, you know, my office is pastor to prepare for what I want to talk to you about today, all right? I, I'm studying through the book of Galatians, and I'm, I'm reading through Galatians, all those verses again, and there's all these verses, if you read the whole, the whole letter sometimes, there's all these verses about the laws and the rules and regulations that, that Moses gave back in the Old Testament, but especially, there are just tons of verses in the book of Galatians about circumcision, I mean, like every fifth verse, there's circumcision again. I'm like, give it a rest, Paul. I mean, come on, we got it, you know, move on to something else. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, because I stand up here and I look at your faces and I'm thinking to myself, what if, what if, and I know this is happening right now, all right, 
What if a man or woman who's never, ever been to church or never been in a long, 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 long time, finally, one of you invites your friend to come to church. What was he going to talk about? I don't know, but I'm sure it'll be good. Come on, come with me, all right? And you came in here for the first time and you heard me stand up in front of everybody and say this. It's okay. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus and you don't have to be circumcised anymore to go to heaven. How weird does that sound? <laughs> Out of context. It's like, what's he talking? I didn't know that was even on the docket. I mean, what, what do you mean? I mean, just think about it, right? right? Uh, listen, I'm not a woman, but ladies, I'd imagine that doesn't really seem like helpful information for your life. <laughs> well, thanks for that, Pastor Jim. Now I can sleep better tonight knowing I have a shot at heaven not based on surgery on a body part I don't have. Praise the Lord. All right, see... <laughs> So, you know, when you talk about circumcision, half the room goes, well, I'm out on that, all right, right? And, and, but men, men, let's just be honest, it feels weird to sit in church and hear Pastor Jim talk about Jesus and your penis in the same sentence, right? <laughs> like, ah, ah, didn't expect that, all right, right, right? Let alone be told that your connection with God is or isn't based upon a medical procedure that you may or may not have had when you were born. I know it's weird. It's weird for you to hear. It's weird for me to talk about, all right? I, I want to talk about Jesus. I could go the rest of my life without talking about the condition of anyone's penis. I don't even like the word penis. It's a gross word. I don't like it. <laughs> It's a medical word. Don't write me. That's a crude word. No, it's not. It's what it's called. All right? So that's just true. All right? So, so I'm not really comfortable with it. Some of you aren't. But apparently there are some of you in this church that are very comfortable talking about it. And here's what I mean. It's been a weird week in my office. I'll explain. Yeah, oh, here we go. All right? So parental warning. I warned you. All right? Right? See, I mentioned all the time. I get these emails from you all. And some are good and some are bad. But this week I got a whole new category of emails. <coughs> Because based on the, you know, the messages that Scott and I've been given over the last you know, several weeks on Galatians, and we've been in circumcision a lot, some of you took it upon yourself to send me YouTube videos on the subject of the pros and cons and the how-tos of circumcision. Thanks for that. <laughs> I mean, Tuesday, I'm sitting in my office, I'm watching a video about circumcision, and I'm thinking, that's just weird. I, that's just weird. So I do what any man would do. I call three buddies. Come in here and look at this with me, all right? <laughs> Watch this, watch this, all right? I've never seen anything like this, right? And then I realized I got four men in my office watching videos of penises, and then it just got weirder, all right? And I kicked everybody out, and I deleted the video. I went home and had a drink, trying not to think about penises the rest of the day, all right? It's like, all right. It's been weird in my office. Weird, weird in my office. So if you're new here, all right, and, <laughs> and you haven't read much of the Bible, let me give you context for what you might hear in here or, or read in here so you don't walk away thinking it's all they talk about. It's like Pastor Jim is upset. I'm not, all right? I'm not upset. I'm not upset. All the pieces in the world I care about, it's not yours, all right? So, all right? I mean, I, I didn't write the Bible. If I, was, if I was God, I would have said, just pierce your ears or something, you know, but don't, you don't have to do that. But so where does all this stuff come from? Because, I mean, if you read the New Testament and the Old Testament, it's just like everybody's talking about circumcision. Where does that come from? So here's the second history lesson. We go all the way back to the very first book of, of, of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And, and you're going to know some of this, but you just maybe forgot. The Christian faith traces its roots back to another religion. What, what, what religion? The, Jew, the Jewish faith. That's why we're in here always talking about the Jews. And then as the Gentiles, we were, we, we were brought in. So the Christian faith traces its roots back to the Jewish faith. And both the Jewish faith and the Muslim religion trace their roots back to one man. And his name is Abraham. All right, you read the Quran. Abraham is in there, all right? He's in our Bible. He's in the Quran. Abraham is also often called the father of faith. The father of faith. So where does that come from? And here's the answer. From a covenant. A covenant, that's a really, really, really important word. A covenant is a promise it all goes back. This whole thing got started thousands of years ago because of a promise. God makes a, a covenant, a promise with Abraham, and Abraham, here it is, confidently believed that God would keep his promise. And what do you call the belief that God will keep his promise? You call that faith, all right? Faith. 
I believe that God is who he says he is, and he will keep every promise, every covenant that he has made to me. He will. I believe that by faith. So what was the promise? What was the covenant that God made to Abraham? Simple. All the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, this is God talking to Abraham. His name was Abram at the time, and he changes it after this promise. So this is God talking to him. He says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing later. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in or through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's the first part of the promise, the covenant. Abraham, I'm I'm going to use you. I'm going to start. I'm going to create a new nation. It doesn't exist right now. I'm going to use you to start a new family, and I will use you and the nation that will come from you, your descendants, sometimes in the the Bible it's called, or your seed, all right, to bless all the families, all the peoples, all the nations of the earth eventually. I will use you and your, your descendants, especially one of them, to restore what has been lost through sin. I promise. I promise. And here's the second part, really a, a restatement or clarification of that, that covenant. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7 says this. And I will establish my covenant between me, saying God, that's God talking still, and you, Abraham, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for what? An everlasting, that's really important, an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So here's the promise. This is going somewhere. So hang on, right? Here's the promise, the covenant that God made with Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to use you to start and build a new family, a new nation, and all your descendants will be part of my family. And eventually, one of your descendants, we now know that's Jesus, will make it possible for all the people of the earth, not just Jewish people, all people from all nations to become a part of my family. And I'll be your God, and I'll be their God. I will. I promise. And here's the exclamation point on that promise. My promise is everlasting. It's forever. It's not based on, Abraham, if you do your part of the deal, if you never make any mistakes, if you don't tell a lie, if you, if you stay faithful to your marriage, if you, if you don't screw up along the way, if, if all the people stay faithful to me, then I'll be faithful to you. No, 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 no. I will keep my promise to save everyone. God is faithful even when we're not. I will save them through one of your descendants. His name is Jesus. Now, now look at this, Genesis 15. This is really, really important. And he and Abraham what? And Abraham what? He believed the Lord. I believe you. I'm in. I'm in. And he and God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. What did Abraham believe? I believe God's going to keep his promise. Now, here's the thing. Abraham's like 90 years old and has no children, and God just says you're going to have a huge family. I'm in. I'm in. You know, he didn't know how he's going to do that. I don't know. I'm married to her. She's as old as me. I don't know how it's going to happen, all right? He didn't know when. He just believed. God's going to do what he said he's going to do. And what do you call it when you believe that God is actually going to do what he says he's going to do? That's called faith, right? And what was God's response to Abraham's faith? I, I believe you're going to keep it. God looked at Abraham and says, you're righteous. You're in. You're good. You're saved. You're in right standing with me. We are connected. Why? Because you, you trust me. Because you believe. Your faith. God gave Abraham righteousness. Gave it to him as a free gift because of faith. Because of faith. I, let, me, let me just clear up a couple questions about uh, when it comes to faith. Because I get asked this all the time. Like, before Jesus, how, did people, how were they saved, all right? And it goes like this. From Abraham up to Jesus, people were saved by faith that God would keep his promise to send one of his descendants to reconnect us back to God. So it was faith looking forward to God keeping his promise. The Old Testament, you could also call it the Old Covenant. It's the same word, all right? It's the Old, it's the old Covenant, the old, old Testament. You will be saved by faith that you believe that God will send someone. You don't know his name. It's Jesus, we find out, who, who, who will reconnect you back. You're saved looking forward. We're saved looking backward. 
We're saved looking backward that God kept his promise by using one of Abraham's descendants, Jesus, to save and reconnect us back to God. So our faith looks back to a fulfilled promise, a person, Jesus, an event, crucifixion and resurrection, where God kept his promise. New Testament, new covenant. You've been saved through faith in Jesus. That's the history lesson. Now, here's this, the, the last part. So where did the circumcision thing come in? Some of you going, I was really looking forward to that. I don't know. All right, so, um, so where did the idea about circumcision come, back, come in? Well, first of all, every spiritual covenant, if you read all through the Bible, God will make a promise. There's always a physical sign given as a reminder of the spiritual covenant. All right, so that whenever you looked at that physical sign, you would rem- it would remind you of the spiritual promise. The second thing about every spiritual covenant involved the shedding of blood, reminding those that are involved in this, in this promise that the wages of sin is what? Death, so the cost of fulfilling God's promise would involve somebody's going to die to reconnect us back to God. There's going to be blood to reconnect us to, to get rid of sin. So look at this, Genesis chapter 17, verse 10. This is God still talking, long conversation. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be, he, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be, here it is, a sign of the covenant between me and you. Any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. So the purpose of circumcision was a sign, a reminder of God. God's going to keep his promise. I just know it. In Romans chapter 4, Paul calls circumcision a seal of the righteousness that Abraham, Abraham had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, circumcision was a reminder. I'm saved by faith in what God is going to do through one of his descendants. Abraham was circumcised after he believed and was declared righteous. Righteous. Circumcision did not save Abraham. Faith saved Abraham. And if you read the book of Romans, and we're going to get to this eventually, which is a letter written to people who live in Rome, it's dedicated in large part to convincing Christians that circumcision of a physical part of your body doesn't save or change anybody, but was a sign of what was coming that was greater because it was by faith. A spiritual circumcision on your heart, an inner seal on your heart that God kept his promise in Jesus. You're sealed. You're saved. See, covenants are forever. And the only thing that breaks a covenant is death. So here's the covenant, a promise. The wage of sin, if you sin, the curse of sin is death. If you sin, someone's going to die. So why did Jesus die on a cross? Because the curse and wage of sin is death. Somebody's going to die. Somebody has to pay. Galatians chapter 3, look at this. Christ redeemed us, bought us, all right, from the curse of the law. Wage of sin is death. By becoming a curse for us. I don't want you to be cursed. I'll be cursed for you. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, a cross, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, I will bless you, remember that, might come to the Gentiles, us non-Jewish people, so that we might receive the promised spirit, Christ in us. How do we get it? Through faith. Through faith. So God made a promise. I'm going to form a nation out of the descendants of Abraham, and one of those descendants will be a savior who will bless and restore what sin stole from people. I will send a Jewish Messiah who will remove sin and reconnect all people who put their faith in the one that I sent. I promise I will send him. And then he did, and his name was Jesus. And we believe that by faith, and the result of faith, we receive the promise. The Spirit lives in us now. Jesus lives in us, right? Before Jesus, the physical sign that a person had faith that God would keep his promise was circumcision. The physical sign that we now have that God kept his promise by sending Jesus is the Holy Spirit seals our heart. The gift of the Spirit, all right? And, and, and the outward demonstration of that is baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a reminder to ourselves that we have already placed our faith in what Jesus did. He lives in us. Problems started right away. You go back to Genesis and they go right up today. The problem started with this. Religious people begin to confuse the physical sign as the thing that saved a person. 
that sign, that's what saves me. If I don't have that sign, I'm not saved, rather than the faith and the promise that the physical sign was pointing to, which is still true today. Religious people always want to focus on the outside instead of the faith. Why? Why do we do that? And here's the best I can come up with. It's just easier to compare yourself to other people on the outside. How do I know if I'm saved or not? Well, I don't really know. I think I'm more saved than her, though. Or, or him, because I can point to more Bible verses. I've done that right, and she's done more wrong, and I can point to more outward behaviors and measure myself against other people. See, when Jesus showed up, and we've been studying through the life of Jesus for the last couple of years in here, right? But when Jesus showed up, there were, there were some religious people who were living terrible, horrible lives. And they're exploiting the poor, ripping off widows, things like that. I'll give marriage. Marriage had become something just so whacked out back in Jesus' day. A Jewish man, it was very common for a Jewish man to get, to get married and divorced 14, 15 times. And he could divorce and kick a woman to the street for any reason. You burnt the toast. Get out. And she only had two options. Go back to her father or become a, become a hooker. That's all she had available to her because she was damaged goods. And, but the men didn't care. They said, oh, no, no, no. Don't judge me. I'm righteous. How do you know? I'm circumcised. I go to church. I don't eat ham sandwiches. And I don't talk to non-Jewish people. Therefore, I'm righteous. You know people that are kind of like that, don't you? You know Christians are absolutely horrible people and say, don't judge me. I go to church. I got baptized three times. Don't judge me. You know, I'm, I'm a good person. Listen, circumcision or doing something right doesn't save anybody. Faith saves you. And the only reason Abraham was circumcised is because he had faith. That's what led him to be circumcised. Because he trusted and obeyed what God told him to do, I believe now I'm going to do something different in my life because I believe let me just tell y'all, about, about a month and a half ago, about 1,500 people walked down this aisle and they, and they got baptized. Let me just clear something up. It didn't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. Faith saves you. And the only reason to be baptized is because I have faith in Jesus. I get asked this all the time. How come Flatirons doesn't baptize babies? Here's the answer. They don't have any faith yet. Yet. Right? We dedicate babies. But you know what we're really doing? We're dedicating parents. God gave me this little thing. What am I going to do with it? Point it towards Jesus. Right? Point it towards Jesus. Raise it up to, to believe and make, it, make his or her own decision about Jesus, right? And, and then they'll, they'll, they'll walk down here and get in a hot tub and they'll make their outward demonstration of something they already believe inside. See, see, look at this, all right? And Paul's talking, anytime he's talking about the rules and regulations that a lot of people try to cling to, the, the word for that is the law. You try to keep all the rules, do this, don't do that, eat that, don't touch that, right? The law, look, look at this. Paul says this in Galatians 3, he says, so then the law, rules and regulations, was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And I like the way the NIV 84 puts it. He says this, it's the same verse. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. I mean, when your kids are little, you have some real strict rules. Then you kind of lighten up and go, you either got it or you don't. But you can cross the street now by yourself. When you were little, you couldn't. But now you understand safety. So they were, they were, they were, there was a point in all those rules and regulations. Like all those rules in, in the Bible about circumcision and food and don't do this and you have to do that were all outward signs, but they were pointing to something else, reminding you to live your life as if you really believe that Jesus would come or has come. That's what the rules and regulations were about. Verse 25. But, but now, now that faith has come, now that Jesus showed up, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons, daughters, children of God. How? Through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. You, you've put on Christ. Let me, let me explain this. It's going to clear up some parts of the Bible that are, that are really confusing. You read that and you go, well, what does that mean? Well, they just seem weird and hard to explain. If someone were to ask you, what is, what is that verse in there uh, about? And, you know, I, I talk about this whole YouTube fiasco that's been happening in my life over the last several weeks, and, and I'm talking about, you know, alcohol and all these different things, and then somebody puts on there, has he read the, the, the scripture in Leviticus about tattoos? Yeah, I have. 
thank you, all right? And we'll get to that, all right? But all those rules are for a reason. Think about this. Every commandment, not just the Big Ten, but all the commandments, all the directives from God that you find in the Bible have a purpose. They're pointing towards the character of God. This is what God is like, and this is what he said is true. This is what God is like, and this is what, what, what God says is true. Paul says that every rule and regulation you find in the Bible is a statement about Jesus. Somehow it's tied to Jesus. For in the Old Testament, circumcision meant this. I have faith that God will send Jesus. In the New Testament, baptism, I have faith that God sent him. So, the, so those, are, those are two rules that all point towards Jesus. But it includes all those, those weird commands you find in the Old Testament. I mean, everyone, I know, you, I have the greatest conversations with you all out in the lobby. Every once in a while, one of you will get real fired up about Jesus. Like, I'm really going to do it this time. And you'll come and go, hey, Pastor Jim, listen, I'm going to read through the whole Bible this summer. I'm like, Really? Really? And I mean, that's a good thing. Read the Bible. I'm not, I'm not against that, all right? Read, read the Bible. But, but listen, I, just, I promise, if you're going to try to read the Bible, like, straight through, you're going to read some really, really weird stuff. You're right, it's there for a reason, but unless you do some research and some studying, just on a drive-by reading, it's just weird. There's weird, crazy stuff in the Bible if you don't really know what's going on. I'll give you an example. This is weird, right? In Leviticus 19, it says this, Jewish men were commanded to not cut the hair on the sides of their heads. That's weird. That's, there you go, all right, right? And you know what? If you go to New York and walk down the streets, you'll see Orthodox Jewish people with long strands of hair going down the side of there. What, what's, what is up with that? It seems weird until you realize that. You've got to study to find this out. When that command was given to the, to the Jewish people, all around the Jewish people were, they, they just came out of Egypt, so they were surrounded by, by worshipers of the Egyptian false god, Ra, the sun god. And men who worshiped Ra cut the hair on their heads in the shape to look like the sun on the top of their head as an act of worship to a false god so here's the rule you live in and god says i know i I was watching you've lived in egypt for a long time don't worship raw why not because he's not real how about this worship and have faith in the god that just brought you out of egypt so don't cut your hair like that just as a reminder oh there's just one true god and it's not the sun god or how about this leviticus now now it makes sense doesn't it like leviticus 19 all right there's there's several verses like this You can't plant two different seeds in the same field or wear clothing woven of two different kinds of material. That's just intrusive. That's my whole closet, right? Right? He says, what? That's a weird rule. Why would God give a a rule about shirts, all right? And how does that say anything about God? Well, if you lean into it and study it, which you just don't do on a drive-by, but but here's what's going on. The Jewish people were about, right when they got that, that rule... We're about to cross the Jordan River into a new country they've never been to before, but God knows what's over there. It's filled with all different kinds of people and all different kinds of religions and belief systems. And God's saying, listen, for the last 400 years, you've lived in Egypt. And while you were there, some of you, I know you know who you are, some of you took part of your Jewish faith, mixed it in with a little Egyptian mythology and religion, and your faith has become a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And God says, I'm the only God. The rest of them aren't real. I'm the only God. I alone am the Lord. So as a reminder of that, how about this, all right? Just, just to remind you, when you make a shirt, make it out of cotton or make it out of wool, but just not both. Don't try to blend them together. As a reminder, don't mix the real God up and combine the real God with bits and pieces of other false religions so that one day you end up with a worthless hybrid faith that can't save anybody. And by the way, I, I, I meet people like this all the time. Right? I do, all right? I, I get this con- a version of this conversation. So I'm kind of like, I'm kind of Jewish, kind of Christian, with a little bit of Hindu and a little Buddhist mixed in. I have faith in Jesus, but karma is important too. I kind of believe a little bit of all of it. That's just great. Coexist. Go for it. All right? But, but, but Jesus is really clear. He's really clear. Jesus said, I'm the way to the Father, and no one gets to, to the Father apart from me. It's Jesus, period. Not Jesus and anything else. So God looks at his people and says, for, for a time, this is going to change later, but for a time, 
Make sure your clothing just has one thing in it. As a reminder, there's just one God. You getting this? There's a reason for all those weird rules in the Bible. Like the laws about tattoos. It's about idolatry. They used to tattoo and mark themselves as, as an act of worship to false gods. It's not about anti-ink. Ink is from the devil. It's don't worship gods that aren't real. Don't get a tattoo for a, a god that's not real. The laws about eating and drinking blood are about cultic sacrifices to false gods. If they sacrifice meat on an idol to a false god, don't have it for dinner. Because it'll get all confusing. If your faith is the one true God, don't worship a fake one. And then a few weeks ago in the book of Acts, we looked at this. We saw that some of those laws that were pointing at Jesus went away. Why? Because Jesus was here. Now you don't have to look at all these rules, right? Just look at him. He'll tell you what, what, what he's like. So from that point on, feel free to wear a blended fabric shirt. Cut your hair any way you want. Eat your steak barely warm and bleeding all over the plate. That's fine. But the truth behind the law that the law was pointing to and leading you to never changed. The truth was this. Don't worship or have faith in any other God except the one who promised and delivered Jesus to you. Why? Because he alone can save. Every one of those rules that you don't understand are all pointing towards Jesus. Now, let me give you my favorite one, biggest one, I think, anyway. Here's a, a, a great example of laws in the, in the Bible pointing to something bigger and higher that you would assume at first, that you, than you would assume at first glance. You're like, well, he's just trying to spoil my fun. He, he doesn't want me to, to, to do this. He's, he's, he's intrusive in my life. No, there's a reason. Here's what I mean by, by, by these specific group of rules. There are tons of verses in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, but especially around the book of Leviticus, chapters regarding sexuality. I mean, just hundreds of verses about, about sex, who you can have sex with, and when you can have sex with him or her, and when you can't, and what, what happens if you step outside of what God says is true and best for your life. The bottom line, all those rules about sexuality all point back to God's big idea when he thought up the whole sex thing in the first place. And, and here's why that still matters. Now, there's a parental warning up here, but let me just say, parents, lean into this, because you're going to be looking for language to explain this to your kids someday. But if you are single, if you are, if you are college age, if you're high school, and you're thinking about being involved with another person in your life, please lean into this. It's really, really, really important. It matters. Let me set it up. A, a few weeks ago, Jordan Terrell, our college pastor, he walks into my office and he says, hey, we're going on a retreat. I'm going to be leading a workshop for some of our college students on sex and dating. And he told me what he was going to be teaching on, the, the, the subject matter, and he asked for my feedback. He told me he was going to talk about how sex outside of marriage can cause a lot of damage in your life, a lot of guilt and shame, how an unplanned pregnancy will, will really impact your life, how girls are God's daughters, and how we as men need to honor them better than we do. All stuff that I've taught before. And I looked at him and I said, you know, that's great. That's really good. But you know, I've been sharing a lot of my story up here over the last couple months in here, and I've been on this, my own journey about my own identity as a man and masculinity and what it means to be created in God's image. And so I looked at Jordan, and I said, that's all good. If you want to do that, that's fine. But what if you just took it to another level? What, what, if, you, what if you went higher, all right, with God's purpose, deeper in its meaning? And he said, well, what, what do you mean? I said, how about you cast this vision? How about you cast this vision, all right? Teach and cast the vision that, here it is, ready? Every man in this room, on the planet, really, contains within him the masculine spiritual image of God. And as he lives out his manhood, however he does that, he is imaging God for better or worse. This is what God is like. Go back to, to the whole circumcision thing. Sexually, if you were a Jewish man, you had cut into your penis the sign of the covenant. As a reminder, my masculinity, which men we all know is connected to our biology, must be aligned with the promise of God and my faith in Christ. My sexual life and how I live that out is connected to my faith and you can't separate them. You cannot separate them. The same is with, with every woman in the room. Ladies, you are created in the image of God to display the feminine image of God. It took both of us to display God you know, correctly. And as you live out your femininity, you are saying, this is what God is like. And then Jesus comes along and, and he quotes Moses, right? And he says, God created them 
in his image, both male and female. And then he brought them together, the two together, in sexual, emotional, and spiritual intimacy, brought together in a spiritual union. The Hebrew word for that is echad, oneness, masculinity, femininity, spirituality, all the image of God. Sexual intimacy is not just a physical act. It is a spiritual act of worship that has the potential to be the closest expression of the Trinity that you'll experience in this life. And if you get it wrong and try to make it or define it as something else, it becomes very, very different. Very different. And I think that if we taught human sexuality to our children in terms like that, it's better than, how about this? Don't have sex in a hotel or the backseat of a car with some dude you just met at a party because you might get pregnant and have to have an abortion or miss college. How about this? Imaging the masculine and feminine nature of God is, I don't know, better. It's more compelling. I think our kids might have a, a higher vision for their life. And I've been thinking about this for a long time, a long time, and I've kind of developed a theory. Let me ask you a question. All right? And again, if, if you're not comfortable with this, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to use any profanity, I promise, all right? But why is our, our some of you going, why, where's this going, all right? <laughs> why, why is, think about this, all right? Why, why is our number one cuss word in the English language, which is the F word, all right? Why is, why is it the one, the word we pick out to be like the ultimate insult? A reference to a holy act of sexual and spiritual intimacy that God designed for a husband and wife to be joined together by the Holy Spirit. Why, why do we pick that? All of our most profane things have to do with that. Why? Why? Why is the effort such a bad word? And here's my theory. And you don't have to believe this, but I'm right. But it goes like this, all right? All right? So just see if you can hang with this. Satan, if you're not comfortable with that, life, the world. And I'm going to say Satan, all right? Satan can't touch God. He tried. He failed. Right? We, we, we know that. We learn, all right? He can't touch the real God. He can't hurt God. Satan can't get to God. So what's he do? He goes after the next best thing, us. Anything that, anyone that's created in God's image or created to say, this is what God is like. If Satan can attack that, then he can get people to believe much less than what is actually real and true and possible in their lives that God said is possible for them. In, in other words, if, if Satan can take a man or a woman, a husband and a wife, created separately, wholly in the image of God, coming together in intimacy and joined to the whole, by the Holy Spirit, if he can take that and reduce it to nine snails I want to blank you like an animal he wins he wins oh is that all it is and then people will give up hope and bind to the light that what God had in mind could ever be possible for something like someone like them because they made mistakes and they'll give up and they'll just quit and the image is ruined he wins therefore I believe again you don't have to believe this but I believe that in some situations the f word isn't even a cuss word it doesn't fit the definition of don't let unwholesome speech come out of your mouth because I, I study the Greek on that and unwholesome, unwholesome speech means empty words that don't mean anything but if something is really effed up screwed up it literally means by definition is nothing close to what God originally had in mind and I'm not saying church let's go out of here and start dropping f-bombs on everybody don't don't the pastor said I could. No, I didn't. Don't. All right. Don't blame me for that. Don't use, don't use that. All right. Don't. All right. But by definition, there are a lot of things in this world, which by definition are, I'm going to change it just so everybody's comfortable, are really screwed up. Nothing close to what God had in mind when he created this. Like, like what, Jim? Like human cultural standards, definitions, and expectations of marriage and sexual identity and expression. Our world has got it wrong. It's messed up. The way that we treat one another and exploit and ignore the needs of the poor, it's messed up. The way, the way many churches portray Jesus as a whiny, weak wuss requesting that whining, can you come back on the sinning? It's messed up and explains why so many strong people in our world, especially strong men and strong women, don't want to follow a wussed up version of Jesus. Why? Because it's not Jesus. I want to follow the real Jesus. How about the way men treat women and women treat men right back? It is messed up. The way we jump into and out of, of marriage like we're trading cars, it's just messed up. So we're flipping about it. Or how about this? The idea that in order to be loved by God and saved, you have to do or look or depend on something on top of what Jesus did for you. 
That's nothing close to what God said. What Jesus offers or lines up with it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And anything other than it's Jesus alone is by definition messed up. It's not close to what God had in mind. And that's just my theory on it. It's my theory on why the world and the church and religion and sexuality and marriage and fatherhood and motherhood and masculinity are so messed up. It's just my theory, but I think I'm right. But if we are we simply go back to what Jesus said and what Jesus did and stick with that, it's very possible that with his help, it can get unscrewed up. I think that's a great prayer. Dear Lord, please unscrew my life. In Jesus' name, amen, right? That's the best prayer. Probably you'll, you'll come out. See, I told you this is going to be a little bit different today, and there, there you go. Now, one more thing, and then, then I'll move off of this. But by the same token, I can never look at another person creating God's image and say, F you. No, 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 no. Why, why, why not? Because what I'm saying that is, is that whatever God has in mind for you, I don't want that to be true for you. And that's profanity. That's unwholesome speech by definition. What's the opposite of that? I want all that God wants for me and I want all that God wants for you to happen. That's all I want. Can you imagine if you had enough faith like that? Can you imagine if you had enough faith, so much faith, trusted God so much that you could say, and by the way, Jesus says it just takes, he picked out the smallest seed you could think of. It just takes that much to change your life. Can you imagine if you could say, all I want for me is what God wants for me. All I want for my marriage is what God wants for my marriage. All I want for my family, all I want for my future, all I want for my job, my career, my heart, my, my relationships for my children, all I want for them is what God says he wants from them. Not, I, I don't want to do that so that he'll save me. All I want for my life is what God says is because I finally realized I am saved. And now I want what God wants for my life. Would your life be different? Can you imagine if you got up here going, you know what? I don't know how I'm going to run my life. I just know this. Whatever God wants, that's what I want. I don't know how I'm going how to raise these kids, but I'm going to get into God's word and go, whatever he says, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to point them towards Jesus. And then they'll have to make their own decisions someday. I don't know how this marriage is ever going to come together. It might, it might not. But I know that at the end of this marriage or 50 years down in this marriage, I'm going to look back and go, all I knew, all I did was everything I knew God wanted for me. Would it make a difference? We're saved by faith. We're not saved because we get baptized. We're not saved because we pull our marriage together. We're not saved because we got off drugs. We're saved because of our faith in Jesus and then Jesus in us will give us the strength and the power to change the things that we would have fixed if we could have, but we can't. You believe that? By faith? Because if you do, you're saved. Let's stand up. I'll pray. We'll sing a song. Go home. All right? God, I love you so much. I love you so much. And right now in this room are thousands of people having arguments with you saying, but what about this? And I did this. And did you forget about this? And I blew up this marriage. And my kids hate me. And my parents hate me. And on and on and on and on it goes. And we can come up with lists of reasons why you shouldn't save us and why we should be disqualified. And then you come along and say, listen, it's not about that. It's about me. It's all about the giver, not the recipient. And I'm going to give you grace and forgiveness. I'm going to give you mercy and love in your greatest time of need. I'm going to hold your life, life together. I don't need you to do anything. Just trust in what my son did for you. God, I pray for every marriage that's suffering in this room, every body that's, that has an aneurysm, that has, has, has cancer, that, 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 that's just, we're, we're getting old and falling apart. God, I just, I just come before you and say, God, will you fix and heal our bodies? Will you hold us together? Will you help us raise our kids because we're making it up as we go and some days we feel like we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong, but we need you. We need you in our life to, to, to teach us and to lead us, to forgive us when we make mistakes and then get back up and keep on going. We need Jesus. And we know that you'll be there for us. We know because you already demonstrated that before we changed one thing in our life, before we, we, we made a promise, before we got off anything or, or started doing something better, before that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So all would be ready for this moment, maybe this very moment when we go, I trust Jesus and I need him in my life. And the answer after that is God gives us righteousness because of that faith. We're saved forever. Will you teach us to believe that, that we are saved and now we can live different? That's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.